You are listening to TGTM News number 101, recorded for Tuesday, August 13th, 2013. You are listening to the Tech Only Hacker Public Radio Edition. To get the full podcast, including political commentary and other controversial topics, please visit www.talkgeektome.us. Here are the vital statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is DGTGTM, as in Deep Geek, Talk Geek to Me. Hi. This is Dan Washko, and now the Tech Roundup. LavaBit email service Snowden allegedly used shut down. This is an open letter from the owner of LavaBit.com, a secure email service that Snowden allegedly used that was published on their site. My fellow users, I have been forced to make a difficult decision to become complicit in crimes against the American people or walk away from nearly 10 years of hard work by shutting down LavaBit. After significant soul-searching, I have decided to suspend operations. I wish that I could legally share with you the events that led to my decision. I cannot. I feel you deserve to know what's going on. The First Amendment is supposed to guarantee me the freedom to speak out in situations like this. Unfortunately, Congress has passed laws that say otherwise. As things currently stand, I cannot share my experience over the last six weeks, even though I have twice made the appropriate requests. What's going to happen now? We've already started preparing the paperwork needed to continue to fight for the Constitution in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. A favorable decision would allow me to resurrect LavaBit as an American company. This experience has taught me one very important lesson. Without congressional action or strong judicial precedent, I would strongly recommend against anyone trusting their private data to a company with physical ties to the United States. Sincerely, Ladder Levison, owner and operator, LavaBit LCC. Five-dimensional glass memory can store 360 terabit per disk, rugged enough to outlive the human race. This recording is from the Command Line podcast by Thomas Gideon about a new storage technology. Extreme Tech was one of several outlets covering research on a new five-dimensional storage medium. I was skeptical at first, as was the author Sebastian Anthony, who encouraged the reader to read past what at first seems like pseudoscience. The first three dimensions under discussion sound similar to other optical storage media. This is this one, this new one is based right now on plain old silica glass, so not too different from the plastics involved with the optical discs with which we're familiar, and also not too dissimilar from what I understand IBM has been looking at uh, into for the last couple of decades in the form of holographic storage in 3D optical lattices. Even multiple layer versions of current optical discs, that's uh, actually not uncommon with Blu-ray in particular, are technically three dimensions, two for the placement of the bit uh, along a, a circular track, and then from the inside and the outside of the disc as either a dot on a, a die-based rewritable or a, a consumer-writable disc or a pit in a surface from the ones that are commercially produced. And the third, albeit small in these multi-layer discs, uh, a third small dimension for the particular layer within the disc itself, the, the, the top-to-bottom layer. In this scheme, the extra two dimensions for this new approach arise from manipulating refraction 
and polarization. So not technically physical dimensions, but definitely dimensions in the sense of mapping out a space of possibilities. With very fine placement on the z-axis, it sounds like the traditional third dimension here also is a bit more dense than the disks with which we're familiar, more than just layering. We're talking about nanometers, if not smaller, within the uh, density of the disks. Those two additional dimensions are apparently made possible through careful manipulation of the nanostructure of the glass itself. It made me think a bit about the diffusion glass story that I shared a while back where that same structure was used as a valuable source of randomness, one that could be altered with a slight application of heat for uh, keying crypto systems in a durable yet very secure way. You might remember that as a discussion about a a, a novel approach, a novel physical approach to uh, the idea of a one-time pad. The difference here is that the glass uh, involved for this storage purpose is apparently super stable, maybe not as susceptible to uh, the the fine-grained and minor alterations from applying a little bit of heat that the crypto application was. There might be different kinds of glass. The researchers from the University of Southampton in the UK note that the necessary structures remain stable up through a thousand degrees Celsius. So that suggests that the silica here is a bit different from the diffusion glass in the other story. They also didn't observe any noticeable degradation of the medium over time, although they clearly have not been doing this research for very long. So it seems like they may be jumping to a bit of a conclusion here, although maybe a valid one, we'll see, of this particular medium potentially lasting for millennia. I fear similar claims were probably made, though, in hindsight for CDs and DVDs when they were first developed until some specific studies were done over longer periods, multiple years worth of time to look at the actual effects of degradation that might suggest the lifetime of discs over decades, if not hundreds of years, centuries, let alone millennia. Regardless, the actual provable benefit is the storage density, some 3,000 times that of a Blu-ray disc at a whopping 360 terabytes worth of storage. That's even 18 times the capacity of the latest generation of new hard drive technology mentioned in the article that has not seen commercial release yet. The limiter, as is usually the case with these sorts of research-driven efforts, is the size of the machinery needed to use this glass. Right now, data is recorded with a femtopulse laser. I'm not really sure that's the resolution that we see in the optical drives we already have in our desktops and servers. And red with a high-quality microscope, which is definitely not the way the optical discs that we're used to dealing with are red back. Anthony speculates, I think correctly that the first applications are likely archival. This conclusion in particular reminded me of the graphene paper that I talked about a few weeks ago, though here the article is clear this is for digital storage. And if you're curious, there's a really good description of actually how that information is directly encoded into this glass. Anthony does provide, as I said, a good amount of clear detail about how this works, leveraging those various physical attributes, the one familiar and unfamiliar, are used to both store and retrieve uh, three bits for, I think, every two uh, coordinates in that five-dimensional space. It's uh, a little fuzzy on that, uh, but definitely worth a read. I think he does a far better treatment than I'm doing justice to. Regardless, the Southampton researchers are definitely looking at commercialization next. The article notes that they are already looking for industrial partners to help. From TechDirt.com by Glenn Moody, dated August 7th, 2013. 
U.S. government war on hackers backfires. Now top hackers won't work with the U.S. government. From what did they expect, Department? Tetter has noticed the increased demonization of hackers, not to be confused with crackers that break in the system for criminal purposes. For example, by trying to add an extra layer of punishment on other crimes if they were done on a computer. High-profile victims of this approach include Bradley Manning, Aaron Schwartz, Jeremy Hammond, Barrett Brown, and of course Edward Snowden. But as this Reuters story reports, that crass attempt to intimidate an entire community in case anyone there might use computers to embarrass the U.S. government or reveal its wrongdoings is now starting to backfire. From the article, the U.S. government's efforts to recruit talented hackers could suffer from the recent revelations about its vast domestic surveillance programs, as many private researchers express disillusionment with the National Security Agency. Though hackers tend to be anti-establishment by nature, the NSA and other intelligence agencies had made major inroads in recent years in hiring some of the best and brightest and paying for information on software flaws that helped them gain access to target computers and phones. Much of that goodwill has been erased after the NSA's classified programs to monitor phone records and Internet activity were exposed by former NSA contractor Edward Snowden, according to prominent hackers and cyber experts. The article goes on. Closest to home for many hackers are the government aggressive prosecutions under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which has been used against Internet activist Aaron Swartz, who committed suicide in January, and U.S. soldier Bradley Manning, who leaked classified files to anti-secrecy website WikiLeaks. A letter circulating at DEF CON and signed by some of the most prominent academics in computer security said the law was chilling research in public interest by allowing prosecutors and victim companies to argue that violations of electronic terms of service constitute unauthorized intrusions. This latest development also exposes a paradox at the heart of the NSA's spying program. Such total surveillance, things like GCHQ's Tempora that essentially downloads and stores all Internet traffic for a while, is only possible thanks to advances in digital technology. Much of the most innovative work there is being done by hackers. It's significant that the NSA's massive X-key score program runs on the Linux cluster. But as the NSA is now finding out, those same hackers are increasingly angry with the legal assault on both them and their basic freedoms. That may make it much harder to keep the pace of technological development within the spying program in the future unless the U.S. government takes steps to address hackers' concerns, something that seems unlikely. From TorrentFreak.com by Ernesto, dated August 7, 2013. Hollywood Keeps Censoring Pirate Bay Documentary Director Outraged Over the past few months, several Hollywood studios have asked Google to remove links to the free-to-share Pirate Bay documentary TPB-AFK. The film's director, Simon Kloss, has contacted the search engine in an attempt to have the links put back online, but thus far without success. Meanwhile, film studios continue to submit new DMCA requests to censor this documentary. After a long wait, the Pirate Bay documentary TPB-AFK was released to the public earlier this year. The film, created by Simon Kloss, follows three Pirate Bay founders during their trial in Sweden. True to the nature of the site, it can be downloaded for free. Through this model, the film's director hopes to reach the broadest audience possible. However, several film studios are obstructing this goal by sending DMCA notices to Google, asking the search giant to remove the links to the documentary. Close was quite shocked when he found out about the unwarranted censorship and initially decided to lawyer up and sue the movie studios. That plan was later aborted when his lawyers at Chilling Effects advised the director that his efforts would be futile. 
Quote, the lawyers saw no use suing the movie studios for filing false DMCA claims and seek damages. Unless I could prove subject intent and bad faith, instead they advised me to file a counter notice once. I had found out whether Google had actually taken down the links or not. End quote, Close explains. The director decided to take up this advice and contacted Google instead, hoping to get the censor links put back up. Close managed to get in touch with Google's Nordic Policy Council, David Moffander, who said he would follow up on the case. But today, two months and several reminders later, the director still has to receive no reply. This leads Close to a belief that Google is more interested in helping Hollywood to censor the web than assisting independent creators to correct DMCA takedown abuses. Quote, to me, it's a depressive lesson that Google rather acts as a private proxy for dinosaur copyright enforcement than helping indie filmmakers experiment with sustainable distribution models, end quote, Close says. While the automated takedown request in question may not be intentional, they are certainly not an isolated incident. After our initial report back in May, copyright holders have sent in new, several new takedown requests for TPB-AFK. Below, is one that was sent on behalf of HBO in June. Notice the claims to protect the Pacific, but also lists a link to the Pirate Bay documentary. A quick search on Google reveals that the results has indeed been removed. Now go to the article to see the actual HBO takedown notice, which includes a number of um, entries, and number 62 is the Pirate Bay Away From Keyboard documentary. The same is true for DMCA requests that was sent in Lionsgate name recently. This notice lists The Haunting of Connecticut 2 Ghosts of Georgia as the copyrighted work, but as can be seen below, the notice also affects TPBAFK and a wide variety of other unrelated titles. Again, go to the website in the article's notes to see the Lionsgate takedown notice and a portion of it that clearly shows TPBAFK is included in there. Close is pretty upset by the unwarranted censorship, which he says hurts his business model, and he urges Google to also protect those who gladly give away their work for free. Quote, it sucks to be arbitrarily censored by Google's and Hollywood's bot system. By making it harder for us to share the film, they are harming our freemium distribution experiment, end quote, Gloss tells Torn Freak. Quote, it's bizarre to be punished for experimenting with distribution models by an industry doing so little for the filmmakers they claim to protect. End quote, he adds. While it is unrealistic to expect Google to catch all errors made by copyright holders, Kloss's problem does bring up one important issue. There is currently no easy way to check whether a link has been removed from Google. In addition, it is not clear how third parties can send counter notices to reinstate content on websites that they don't own. First and foremost, however, copyright holders should make sure that their automated tools don't take down legitimate content that is not theirs. Update. Simon Kloss tells Torrent Free that after he posted his complaint in public, Google's Nordic Policy Council, David Moffander, offered to reinstate the links. Quote, David from Google just called me up and said his reply to me had gotten stuck in his outbox. He said it was really lame excuse and he said he was sorry. Then he offered to put the links that had been taken down back. End quote, Kloss says. From TornFreak.com by Andy, dated August 6, 2013. DMCA notices to search engines won't mitigate piracy, tech giants say. A news research paper seriously downplays the importance of search engine traffic on sites that offer unauthorized downloads. The CCIA, which counts Google, Yahoo, and Microsoft among its members, says that making items disappear from search results via DMCA notices is not the key to substantially reducing piracy. General-purpose search engines are not part of the average infringer's toolbox, the companies note, 
adding that entertainment companies should focus on their own SEO. One of the hottest piracy-related topics in recent times is the role search engines play in the discovery of unauthorized copyrighted material. Rights holders in their thousands have already sent Google more than 100 million DMCA takedown notices this year in the belief that removing search engine listings will go a long way towards making illicit content harder to find. But is that really the case? According to a new research paper titled The Search Fixation, Infringement, Search Results, and Online Content, the emphasis right holders are placing on censoring search engine results is actually achieving very little, and those valuable resources might be better off spent elsewhere. The paper, published by the Computer and Communications Industry Association, CCIA, which accounts Google, Yahoo, Microsoft, and Facebook among its members, says that entertainment industry companies have become fixated on the role search engines play in unearthing illicit content. The focus is so great, there was even an attempt to legislate site censorship via a controversial Stop Online Piracy Act. Quote, this might lead to the conclusion that search engines are a prominent tool in infringers' toolbox. In fact, available evidence suggests that search is not a particularly relevant tool for infringers seeking to find sites, such as the Pirate Bay, or for sites to find users, end quote, the report states. The CCIA cites research from BAE Systems Dectica, which founds that users are far more likely to return to infringing sites via direct browser entry or via social networks. Furthermore, it appears that users looking for illicit material already know where they want to obtain it from even before they start searching. Quote, as of August 2013, over 20% of queries that result in traffic being directed to the Pirate Bay consist of words comprising the Pirate Bay's domain name. This suggests that users are quite aware of their intended destination before they arrive at a search engine, and that any facilitation was minimal, CCIA explained. When criticizing Google over its search results, the RIAA has previously noted that searches including the terms download, mp3, or torrent often turn up links to infringing content. However, in their report, the CCIA says that such searches are infrequent when compared to straightforward lookups on artists' names, which are actually more likely to turn up links to authorized content. So why not improve the usefulness of those? Quote, the fixation on demoting responsive but undesirable search results overlooks a more viable strategy, promoting desirable search results, end quote, the paper notes. CCIA suggests that if the entertainment industry wants their content to appear in search results where the users type objectionable terms such as those listed above, then they will have to start using them on pages offering legal content. Noting that legitimate sites aren't currently employing such a strategy, the CCIA comes to two conclusions. Quote, this suggests either A, a deficiency in otherwise robust online marketing strategies, or B, that these terms are judged to be unworthy of optimizing because they will drive a trivial amount of commercial traffic. End quote. Quote, stated otherwise, if search terms such as MP3 and download were likely to lead to sales or subscriptions, a rational, profit-minded online platform engaging in basic search engine optimization, SEO, would attempt to incorporate those terms in site content, end quote. The CCIA concludes by noting that while DMCA notices might be a useful tool, they are unlikely to achieve the desired result of substantially reducing piracy, concentrating on improving the visibility of legitimate content, even if that means utilizing objectionable terms would be more robust strategy. From perspectives.mvdirona.com by James Hamilton, dated July 16th, 2013. Counting servers is hard.
At the Microsoft Worldwide Partners Conference, Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer announced that, quote, we have something over a million servers in our data center infrastructure. Google is bigger than we are. Amazon is a little bit smaller. You get Yahoo and Facebook and then everybody else is 100,000 units probably or less, end quote. That's a surprising data point for a variety of reasons. The most surprising is that data point was released at all. Just about nobody at the top of the server world chooses to boast with a server count data point, partly because it's not all that useful a number, but mostly because a single data point is open to a lot of misinterpretation even by even skilled industry observers. Basically, it's pretty hard to see the value of talking about server counts, and it's very easy to see the many negative implications that follow from such a number. The first question when thinking about this number is where does the comparative data actually come from? I know for sure that Amazon has never released server count data. Google hasn't either, although estimates of their server footprint abound. Interestingly, the estimates of Google server counts five years ago was 1 million servers, whereas current estimates have them only in the 900,000 to 1 million range. The Microsoft number is surprising when compared against past external estimates, data center build rates, or ramp rates from previous hints and estimates. But, as I said, little data has been released by any of the large players, and what's out there is typically nothing more than speculation. Counting servers is hard, and credibly comparing server counts is close to impossible. Assume that each server runs 150 to 300 watts, including all server components, with a weighted average of, say, 250 watts per server. And as power usage effectiveness estimator, we will use 1.2, only 16.7% of the power is lost to data center cooling and power distribution losses. With these scaling points, the implied total power consumption is over 300 megawatts. 300 million watts or, looking at annual megawatts per hour, we get an annual consumption of over 2,629,743 megawatt hours or 2.6 terawatt hours. That's a hefty slice of power even by my standards. As a point of scale, since these are big numbers, the U.S. Energy Infrastructure Administration reports that in 2011, the average U.S. household consumes 11.28 megawatts. Using that data point, 2.6 terawatts is just a bit more than the power consumed by 230,000 U.S. homes. Continuing through the data and thinking through what follows over the 1 million servers, the capital expense of servers would be $1.45 billion, assuming a very inexpensive $1,450 per server. Assuming a mix of different servers with an average cost of $2,000 per server, the overall capital expense would be $2 billion before looking at the data center infrastructure and networking costs required to house them. With the overall power consumption computed above 300 megawatts, which is 250 megawatts of critical power using a PUE of 1.2, and assuming a data center build cost at a low $9 per watt of critical load, Uptime Institute estimates numbers close to $12 per watt, we would have a data center cost of $2.25 billion. The implication of over 1 million servers is an infrastructure investment of $4.25 billion, including the servers. That's an athletic expense even for Microsoft, but certainly possible. How many data centers would be implied by the more than 1 million servers? 
Ignoring the small points of presence since they don't move the needle and focusing on the big centers, let's assume 50,000 servers in each facility. That assumption would lead to 30 major facilities. As a cross-check, if we instead focus on power consumption as a way to compute facility count and assume a total data center power consumption of 20 megawatts each and the previously computed 300 megawatt total power consumption, we would have roughly 15 large facilities. Not an unreasonable number in this context. The summary following from these data and the over 1 million service number. Facilities 15 to 30 large facilities. Capital expense $4.25 billion. Total power 300 megawatts. Power consumption 2.6 terawatts per hour annually. Over 1 million servers is a pretty big number even in web scaled world. Staff and produced by the TGTM news team. Editorial selection by DeepGeek. Views of the story authors reflect their own opinions and not necessarily those of TGTM News. News from techdirt.com, eoionline.org, perspectives.mvdirona.com, and allgov.com, used under arranged permission. News from eff.org and tornfreak.com, used under permission of the Creative Commons by attribution license. News from rhrealitycheck.org, used under terms published on their website. News from LavaBit.com is an open letter. News from Fair.org, used under permission of the Creative Commons by attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. News from the CommandLine.net, under, used under permission of the Creative Commons by attribution, share-alike license. News sources retain their respective copyrights. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me. Here are the vile statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is DGTGTM, as in DeepGeek. Talk Geek to Me. This episode of Talk Geek to Me is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 Unpoured License. This license allows commercial reuse of the work as well as allowing you to modify the work so long as you share alike the same rights you have received under this license. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binref.com. All binref projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Share Alike, 3.0 license. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. 
If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All BinRev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.